699 per pound podcast it's been a while since we have all the team members reunited like the second track i think off the first uh uh no hold up it's not the first yeah 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 yeah. it's it's been a while i was about to reference i'll make a wu-tang reference out of nowhere but um yeah we back all the members are here jojo's a lot calmer even though she's still bubbly as always um are you going to introduce our wonderful guest today? Yes, I am. So I'm so excited. Our guest today is a scholar of housing policy and design, urban planning, and community inequality, all these things that everyone should care about. She's currently a professor of sociology and Latino and Hispanic Caribbean studies at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. I'm sure you have a lot of friends there, JK. No, I do not. Oh, man. I, don't, just I, don't really, I don't really bang with Jersey like that. But shout out Queens to Jersey, boy. though. Yes, yes. Um, she's also the author of Locked In, Locked Out, Gated Communities in the Puerto Rican City, which won the 2014 Robert E. Park Award from the American Sociological Association. She is someone who is truly changing the world by sparking these crucial conversations and watering minds. And we're so ready to get schooled by the fabulous Dr. Zaire Denzi Flores. Welcome to the 699 Podcast. I think you should have uh, rolled your R a little bit more. When you Flores. Flores. Denzi Flores. Darn it. You got it, you got it. I got it, I got it. How's it going, doctor? It's great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So so do you live in New Brunswick? No, I live in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. in (laughs) Bed-Stuy. Bed-Stuy, do or die, okay. Um, So how do you commute all the way to New Brunswick every... Do you go every day or like is it like a... I go about two or three times a week okay. um, to teach my classes Aww. and have my meetings. And um, luckily, we live in, a, in an area that has many transportation options. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. train, car, whatever works. Got you. Got you. I think I think we want to first talk about like your origin story. Um, we were chopping it up a little earlier before we started this. Uh, are you from New York City originally? Uh, you know, because I know you live in Brooklyn now, but where are you from originally? Yeah, I grew up in Puerto Rico, in Ponce, Puerto Rico. Yay! Represent! Yes, <laughs> Boricua. And um, yeah, uh, my parents are Dominican immigrants in Puerto Rico, So, but I grew up there. Um, that's home. Well, if... I wanted to ask because your academic career is so stunning. Like, you went to Harvard, you went to Stanford, and then you ended at Michigan um, finishing up your doctoral studies. So were you always so academic as a child? Like, was that your dream to, like, pursue this kind of, uh, like, path? Yeah, good mm-hmm. question. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm al- I've always been sort of a nerd. <laughs> Um, I, I've been into books, you know, for as long as I can remember. Um, I was into a lot of things. I was an athlete growing up. Um, I think that my desire to, to do well really comes from growing up, um, in a place where I was racially different, um, 
surprisingly so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talk about in, this. In Ponce, Puerto Rico. In Ponce, Puerto Rico. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I talk about this a little bit in the prologue of my book about yeah. like this desire to do well. Um, because even though people think of, you know, places like Puerto Rico, like places that are, you know, racially inclusive and people love each other and everyone's a mix, there are actually racial distinctions and um, there's a lot of racism. And I f- and, and obviously, you know, uh, xenophobia and I was Dominican in background. So I felt that I really had to um, do well to to make my name, to prove myself really as a black child especially growing up in a in in a time where the images uh, there weren't a lot of dark skin images out there so that's how i grew up what i didn't know then is that um i was there's this image of how to be black and that i was struggling to figure out in that context i mean how i to had to be black american or black mm-hmm. caribbean like there's different types of being black in America, right? Right, but the assumption, and I think this carries through to today, is that blackness comes as African American, right? Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of the images that we get of blackness is represented through African Americanness. And I had been black all my life. Like I grew up in a household where my father is black, my mom is black, and they talk about you know um, being black and proud. Um, in, in Spanish, negrito, mm-hmm. negro, like mm-hmm. that was our celebration. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sort of translating that into 1990s um, when sort like of hip-hop Af- scene yeah, yeah, like of blackness, even at Harvard. Yeah, mm-hmm. Afrocentricity was kind of at its peak, right? Right, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You had like people like Leonard Jeffries, who's this like um, Afrocentric, uh, very controversial. Mm. Um, so I was, I searched for that. I even like would visit with some of my Harvard friends. We would go to, um, you know, some mosque, Nation of Islam mosque. And so I was exploring all of that. Did you became a Fopper Center? Started understanding the universal mathematics, the supreme mathematics. No, 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 no. no. I <laughs> did not. <laughs> I did not. Um, but I was exploring, and so um, it was great. It, it was great in many regards. It also um, um, defined sort of what I ended up doing later, yeah. um, and sort of returning to this idea of how do you. Um, how do you uh, celebrate other forms of of blackness that come in different garbs, in different costuming, um, and acknowledge it outside of the this what seems to be this global view of blackness, right? Like everybody was watching Bill Cosby, the Cosby show, <laughs> growing up, um, mm-hmm. and thinking that that's the way that blackness should be lived, like from South Africa to, you yeah. know, to uh, the Caribbean or wherever, everybody had this image of like blackness happens in a brownstone, um, speaking in English with African-American art, you know, so, Mm -hmm. and there are many other forms of blackness Mm -hmm. globally. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about the organization you mentioned, the Afro-Latino Forum? Yeah. Um, How did it start? Did you start it? Um, What are some ways that other people can get involved or learn more about getting into these conversations? Yeah, so I didn't start the organization. My um, dear colleague and, I mean, uh, uh, Miriam Jimenez Roman and the late Juan Flores, who are 
kind of very um, well-known scholars, uh, started this organization. Um, I want to say it was like 20 years ago. You might not want to quote me on that, <laughs> but um, they started this organization. It's sort of like it has two phases, a, a research and um, activist kind of um, phase, and it's tried to, uh, to highlight kind of the experience of Afro-Latinidad, especially in the U.S., um, but its relationship with Latin America as well. And um, so what we have been working on is trying to um, work so that the U.S. census continues to um, measure racial differences within the Latinos so that we are able to understand how um, how race informs the experience of being Latino in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so the research that there is shows us that those that are um, black Latinos tend to have like lower socioeconomic um, uh, 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 measures standards, yeah. Then, then those that are um, lighter skin. So that those are, that are lighter skin or like identify as white or are white tend to approximate closer like white American standards of living. So, um, and and there's uh, the AfroLatinoForum.org is the web page, um, and there are opportunities there for being involved. I mean, the Afro-Latino thing has now become, I think it's becoming um, more popular with some figures out there that are in popular culture that are kind of highlighting Amara La Negra. I don't know if you've heard of her, um, who's an artist, who's in hip-hop. I mean, even like Cardi, Wives like or Car- yeah, yeah, even like Cardi, hip hop, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. <laughs> maybe one of those. Yeah, yeah, even like Cardi, yeah, like Cardi, uh, Cardi B. B, for instance, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I have so much more questions regarding race and about um, Latin, Latino, and um, Latino American culture. Um, but um, I think we kind of want to go back into speaking about your professional career yeah. as yeah. a. Um, as a professor, a professor, as a professor who um, you've studied sociology, uh, is that what you specialize in? So I know sociology it kind of expands very vastly, right? So you're talking <laughs> about studying of humans and human interaction. Um, so why did you decide to choose that field? And then um, what? kind of like revelations or understandings that you've come across by uh, studying sociology? So um, so when I went to college, I, you know, one of the things I think uh, you, people suggest when you're approaching college, like people have to know what they want to do in life. You know, like, what are you going to be? Like, when you start asking kids that from like the time they're like three. <laughs> no pressure. It's yeah. like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, how am I supposed to know? So I'm still the person who doesn't know what they want. You know, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, even in my, it, uh, you know, I don't want to 
say my age, so I won't. But, <laughs> but even at this stage, I'm like, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I went to college, and I just, uh, I applied undecided, you know, for those who think, like, you can't go anywhere if you don't tell them, I want to do this exactly. No. Um, and, you know, luckily they were like, fine, you don't know what you want to <laughs> be, but still come. And I just shopped around. I just took the courses that were attractive to me that and uh, sociology is where I, I I didn't know what sociology was before it and I just kept taking sociology courses and I think it spoke to my um, desire to really understand society and to have a clue into social justice and mm-hmm. and 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 inequality and how that came about and how that happened. So I ended up doing sociology and a few other things like Afro-American studies, um, given my interest in race, and I did um, psychology as well. I mean, as I went along, my interest is really in um, built environments and how places are designed. So the ways in which inequality is coded Right. It's encoded in right. in in places where you don't think it exists. Right. It's already there, and that's not natural. That's right. man-made. It's like man-made. It, Gentrification is man-made, pretty much. I mean, yeah. all, all of it is man-made. Right. Um, even things that people think of natural, right? Like natural disasters, or that. That's all, a lot of that is informed by people, human action. Yeah, and on, and on, so I guess that kind of leads to two questions. Since you mentioned sociology and about um, the studying of housing, one question is, I mean, you said that you live in Brooklyn. I do. And um, Brooklyn is one of those places that are, uh, the last 15, 20 years have been um, extensively, actually within the last century, has been extensively affected by redlining, yeah. right? Um, if you could kind of explain to us what is redlining and how is gentrification not a natural cause, but something that was really pre-designed. So redlining. So, you know, when when what many people don't know is that once, um, once the U.S. government developed the ability for people to own homes at affordable rates without like FHA mortgages, um, uh, Federal Housing Author- uh, Administration mortgages, um, developed so that people can do this like long-term 30-year mortgages where you pay low uh, interest rates that those were afforded more to whites than to blacks. So this is where you see a movement of whites out of the city, like white flights to suburbia to buy these houses. And this happened after World War II? Yes, gotcha. exactly. And... Um, and so there's an expansion of homeowners, right? And they move into these neighborhoods where largely blacks were kept from. They weren't offered mortgages. They weren't denied. And the view was that if you offer mortgages to blacks, the prices would come down. So in this process, what we also see is that neighborhoods that were predominantly um, uh, black or that re- residents were black. And and a lot of this history is written in terms of black and white, but there were also ethnic minorities mm-hmm. living in these places. Mm-hmm. Latinos were part of it. Where they lived, these places were designated as not worthy of investment. So there were actual maps drawn out by lenders 
that they painted over places that were undesirable where you would not provide a mortgage and they painted them red. So the the redlining is quite literal mm-hmm. um, for lenders to say, no, we're not providing, not investing in those neighborhoods. So this is where disparities in uh, wealth started happening because those that were able to buy houses and get houses in neighborhoods that would appreciate started building their wealth versus black people, you know, not being able to move black, Latino, other ethnic minorities, not uh, racial ethnic minorities, not being able to sort of start their building uh, their uh, building their uh, foundation wealth. for a family, right, right, or right, wealth, right, right. So that then we have this sort of like suburban inner city dichotomy of you know lack of resources, abandonment, um, no investment, garbage not being picked up versus the suburban, you know, beautiful mm-hmm. homes that are accruing in value, accruing value. So then, um, you know, fast forward to the 20th century when cities, well, 20, late 20, 21st century, really, when cities become attractive again. So uh, now we have this sort of like inverse dynamic where they, they call them the return of the white flighters, where they want to be close to their jobs. They want kind of like this different kind of life. And uh, in neighborhoods that had been traditionally ignored and disinvested, they have accumulated the wealth right from the suburban homes that others were prevented from getting. And they then can reinvest and then displace people and have this sort of like rising values and prices and and cleaned up neighborhoods that end up displacing. So, you know, in many ways, communities of color have been uh, at the... we're constantly like pushed yeah, around pretty it's like much. It's so tragic. They have no say in where yeah. they get to live. It's practically, yeah. Because yeah. I think you, I, I've been reading a lot about Chinatowns lately and how Chinatowns across the US are practically going extinct because these former slums are now such prime real estate for what you say people who want to go back into these cities and stuff and like how the rate of homelessness amongst like the elderly the asian american population is like skyrocketing and it's just like it it really relates to everything that you're saying and this connecting the dots for me and that they've never had a choice from the beginning like they made the best of what were handed to them and made this rich culture of like the communities and now it's being taken over again and now they have nowhere to go yeah little say i mean very little say in what happens Mm -hmm. there's um this i think i haven't watched it but there was um this there's this uh film documentary Mm -hmm. on a Chinese um, bank here in China. Oh, yes. Uh, Abacus? Abacus. Yes. And uh, I haven't watched the film, but I read they, in the New Yorker, they had a great piece on it. Um, And sort of similar how the ways in which uh, communities sort of manage or try and counteract these forces that are federal policies that are said that really um, uh, penalize them. And so communities do their best to kind of get through them or survive 
playing the same game that's being played, right, um, uh, in other places or by other communities, and so how they still lose. Uh, my current work is actually on real estate in Brooklyn. Um, I'm actually presenting tomorrow. No. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, can you give us a, a quick, like a 150-word Twitter <laughs> version of the presentation? <laughs> I need to get up on my Twitter game. Yes. So, um, so I'm looking at how uh, race is built in in the ways they value uh, real estate, how it's encoded in how real estate prepares um, neighborhoods that are now attractive to um, white owners um, to invest their money and to find them valuable. So how they change it and how race is imbued in that, but in a codified ways. So tell us about that codified way. Like, give us an example of how it's codified. Because, you know, I grew up um, in New York, uh, I I believe, like, right before this this incredible surge of um, gentrification really started to take place. Because, you know, I used to get intimidated to go to Fort Greene, like, to go to Fulton Mall. That was, like, an experience for me. Um, especially being like an Asian kid from Queens, you know, and going to certain certain parts of Brooklyn wasn't really an attractive thing to do. Like Williamsburg was a was like a no man's land. Like you just go there if you're like, you know, doing graffiti, or like you go there to dump cars that you stole. And <laughs> you know, so another smorgasbord. Yeah, like so now how it is now, and it changed within my own lifetime, and you know, it changed. I, I believe within the last less than twenty years, and how all of this is happening so fast. And um, I currently work in Crown Heights. Um, I, uh, my office is on Utica Ave. And that's kind of like the last stop for the four train to go expressed into the city. Every day uh, as I'm going back home, like I see more and more um, Whole Foods grocery bags. And um, I, it's great. I love Whole Foods. No, and no shots against Whole Foods, but, you know, the type of people carrying that grocery bag is not shopping at, you know, uh, you know, Western beef. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I'm just kind of curious to see, like, how is this thing able to just happen so quickly? And, like, uh, the displacement of these people. Where do these people, uh, Latin and black communities, and even in Williamsburg, like, there was a huge Polish community there at one point, right? Where do all these people go? You know what I mean? And um, like, how do how do how do these real estate giants like make it so attractive for these people to just invest into these places that just about a decade ago was they would have like never stepped foot on it? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, the, where do these people these people go? It's kind of like the big question, and um, I think. Unfortunately, scholars haven't really tracked <laughs> or have a way to visualize exactly where it is. We know that they're not there. I, I mean, Bed-Stuy, I was just looking at the numbers, had the highest increase in in white residents in the la- from 2000 to 2016 in the whole city. It's like wow. 3,000 and something percent oh increase. 3,000. Um, uh, followed by... We know what the other places are, Bushwick, mm-hmm. Williamsburg, but Bed-Stuy had the highest increase. By, and Ridgewood, I think, was also very high um, in Queens, so uh, which is right there by the border. Uh, so that's the area of this, you know, massive kind of reinvestment because um, should not be this way, but uh, white residents mean investment, right? Uh, so the question is, where do these other people 
go. Um, and I don't know that that has been sufficiently well tracked. Uh, in terms of what makes it attractive, graffiti is a perfect example. Graffiti in the 80s was, you know, something to, that was criminal, mm-hmm. looked down upon. Uh, but there's a resignification, a way of like saying, you know, now this is cool. Art oh, has pretty happened. Pretty much like what happened at Bushwick, right? Right, in the 21st century. So that now it's about being, it's like art galleries on the street rather than criminal hoodlums doing, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which was how it was seen in the 80s. So I think there's a resignification and a, um, You know, they say, like, it depends on who's doing (laughs) the criminal act, whether you're going to define it as a criminal act, quote unquote, right? So that even the law, right? Um, uh, uh, It's a sociologist would say it's a structure, right? Like that we develop what's right and what's wrong, but it's informed by people and their biases and their preferences. Um, and so there, there are other things that are happening that I talk about in this current research that are more subtle, like if you look at real estate um, and the way they portray the the listings uh, for Bed-Stuy, they tend to do this thing where they do it, they, they portray it as blank slates, like places where you can come and do your thing versus uh, if you were doing advertising property in Brooklyn Heights, for example, and there you're already buying into this expensive brownstone lifestyle, which is all painted. So it's it's painted in for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have um, the staging in the properties and it looks a certain way versus a place like Bedstuy where you're really doing away, like I I call it de-blacking, De-blacking. Taking wow. away blackness. Yo, that's a six ninety nine <laughs> keyword right there. Yo, de-blacking. I never heard that term before, but that's crazy. Yeah, it's it's been it's been offered by some of my informants. Mm-hmm. Um, where or your informants? Uh, people that live there, okay, okay. residents yeah. that I've been interviewing. This is part of the research I've been right, doing. Right. Um, shout out uh, to the informants. I never yeah. I never thought that I would shout out informants, but yeah, that's tight. Informants. Yeah. <laughs> They're not not as in informants as yeah, informants. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> but uh, that's what we call them in research, sort of, instead of saying people I interviewed or mm-hmm. interviewees, informants, they are collaborating, mm-hmm. collab- they are collaborating with me um, in some ways. Uh, and some people call it whitewashing. I've seen that, like written. I, I have I've pictures heard that, of yeah, that. Columbusing. Um, Columbusing yep. is another term, which um, it's not inappropriate. <laughs> uh there's also what else? I also um, uh, have talked about what's the term I use? Um, I can't remember. Uh, white out, white out, mm-hmm. white, whiting out. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think it's important to talk about the ways in which you kind of like temper blackness. So that you make it palatable, because it's not that people want to move in and not see a black person. They're in fact like moving in because they're like they think of themselves as that authentic. That they want to experience authenticity. Well, there's a a scholar in DC that talks about it in that way. He calls it the wire effect. Yeah, Um, it's like they're going to an amusement park almost, right? Yeah, I think of it a little bit differently. I don't think that people want to run the streets like with the threat of being like you know. 
killed or shootouts, which is, I think, the the way this um, uh, uh, scholar that did this book on DC sees it. I see it as more people are genuinely entering a, a new stage in like race relations where they really mm. want black friends like right. white people mm-hmm. want black right, friends right. they mm-hmm. they genuinely have a more liberal view of of what living in 21st so they're not the so they're not know, then, then they're not necessarily going in there with a form of like like a cultural tourist type of um aspiration is more so like they genuinely want to know or kind of coexist with the community there. Yeah, they're not, I mean, they are not like white supremacists, right? Like we see that, we have mm-hmm. that in, in today right. in our society. And we have, that. that is, you know, fully clear that we have that and these are anti that. So, you know, I... Jeff being, Sessions, we see you. <laughs> there are many of them. Like, keep saying those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, as a, as a researcher and as a sociologist, uh, I, the attempt is to be, we're all biased, we're all subjective, but the attempt is to represent this as close to how people experience it as possible. Mm-hmm. So I also don't want to like make caricatures of these people moving into these neighborhoods like, oh, they're consumers, even though some of the qualities of that caricature, like, you know, you're consuming or yes, you're driving up values are true and real. But then how do we understand what is happening? So I think these people are genuinely, at least in their minds, um, trying uh, to assimilate. Trying to participate differently than the white flighters, right, Right. in a society, that doesn't mean that the impact of their actions is any less, you know, um, harmful. harmful. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what I see is rather than this wire effect is this sort of like tempered blackness, which is the sort of like, I am going to engage you at this sort of like superficial level. I'm going to engage blackness at this like level, but not at others. So I use the example, do you know Kahindi Wiley? He's this artist. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, the, oh, yeah, he mm-hmm. recently did the Obama, um, of Obama course. portrait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the prime examples I use in this research. So Kahindi Wiley, his portraiture is sort of taking black men. If you look at the, not the Obama painting, mm-hmm. but, yeah. but the mm-hmm. others is taking black men from the streets and then he also did women, but black men from the streets and placing them centrally in like these He's renaissance. Like style mm. art. Like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. so he has at the Brooklyn Museum, he has a Napoleon, yeah. right. a black man in a... Or like in the, a Yankee fitted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so I uh, I think that's... Uh, it's like clinic switching in physical form, I yeah. feel like. Yeah. Well, and he talks about it. Uh, he says literally it's like putting this... These, bo- these bodies, these people in the field of power. Right, mm-hmm. that are often underrepresented and by placing them in a place where they're um, much more celebrated so it therefore empowering them and yeah. then kind of like you know, obviously going to have a, a sociological and also a mental effect on like a young kid who might want, you know, look right. at a painting like that mm-hmm. who might have never seen himself or herself mm-hmm. represented in that manner. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. But the other side of it is that these are, at the end of the day, depictions of, like, Western or, like, white culture, right? It's not necessarily. So you're kind of buying into, like, that is what I want to aspire to be, maybe versus, like, creating your own 
I don't know. Like, is that, yeah, cur- would yeah. you say that's valid? <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, no, that's uh-huh. an interesting, yeah. I mean, I think in some ways it's like taking, taking like this that. from mm-hmm. the street, taking, the, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I will, I will engage blackness on, in, uh, under these terms, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So from, this is from the white gaze, right? I mean, I think that it also might function differently mm-hmm. for different audiences, mm-hmm. right? So yes, there's an empowerment, but it's also, placing it within western culture yes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and from the white gaze i think it's like now it's pretty i didn't like that person on the street hanging out on the corner i don't like that Mm -hmm. that person but with the backdrop yeah it's like the cosby show is beautiful yeah right it's like the cosby show of like let's you know make them like super rich super proper super well dressed and palatable to white audiences and then the ratings are going to go up and then that's like what there's still representation but then like a lot of other families were like that is not what a nuclear like our experience is not that that's like the top one percent yeah i mean that's why there was the cosby show and then there were also like other shows that kind of like supplemented that or kind of you know kind of came after that because and also i think the cosby show i mean i'm sure like there were white people involved but overall like it was like the creators uh they were black and then their vision was to kind of create or represent the family a black family that wasn't really shown in that manner in the past yeah and it's just like a weird you know because i studied media communications and they talked about how you know they want to sell it so how are we going to sell it like like, okay let's make it palatable um even like whitney houston like when she came on the stage like let's dress her up like beautifully like put her on like straighten her hair like do all these things to like make her you know like the best version of a black person in a western mind Mm. in order to like let's ease them in kind of thing but is that you know, the, the the ethics of it is, like, so blurry because that was, like, someone who really changed the scene and then created a spark of inclusion, but at the cost of, you know, right. yeah. uh, wrongful right. representation. Right. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this podcast, we definitely want our listeners to take away um, uh, different professional tips of, like, becoming or partaking in that particular profession. So... Since we have you, who is a more than accomplished college professor, uh, a PhD, uh, like so many different things that kind of go into it. You're a doctor, so I need to call you doctor. The you height know what I mean? of uh, academic achievement. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of like, because you know, she's like too much, like uh, too many titles is growing. <laughs> There's so light like, coming from her. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's like the Buddha's light, you know what I mean? So anyway... Yeah, so like, how how do how does a person become a PhD doctor? You know what I mean? Like, how what what is the process? Because when you think of that, like, there's dissertations, there's so much writing that you have to do, and then doesn't it also take like a long period of time for you to, um, you know, like get approved by your peers? And I also know like, I know like there's like battles, not literally like a rap battle, but I know like. <laughs> Like different Similar. professors, like they kind of like go against each other mm. about now. Nah, like your shit is wrong, your shit is fugazi. Nah, my shit is right. And then they write like, you know, they write like papers against each other. Zaid is like nodding journals. right now. She's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. So they they talk, talk they talk shit about each other, you know, <laughs> but like in a very academic way. You know what I'm saying? They they fire shots at each other. So, uh, yeah. So if you could talk talk to us about um, how to become a professor, a PhD, and uh, what are some um, 
you know, what are some daily activities of being yeah. a professor? <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, it's, it's a long road to becoming a professor, and uh, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, like most professions, they aren't really made for um, people who are not coming from some backgrounds, you know, it's, it's, that, that's true for most professions and it's true for academic life. Uh, but basically what it takes is uh, you having a burning desire to answer questions, that you have questions that you just, you know, want to find answers for. Um, and, you know, I'm a social scientist. I'm a scientist at the end of the day. Uh, and I, I want to discover things. And, you know, any day, any second of the day, I am a sociologist. I didn't know that, right? right. I, I wouldn't define myself. They say like sociologists are peeping toms. Right. They're like, Essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> you yeah. know, you're basically in other people's business. Right. Um, I say my kid is a sociologist because she's in everybody's business. Right. Right. So, um, or an Start anthropologist early. or a scientist. It's like observing. I get burning questions like on the subway. I'm like, that's a question. That's a research project. So um, I have, uh, there's an end list. Um, uh, 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 assortment of things that I, I want to know and right. I want to know more about. And so having uh, curiosity is one thing. Yeah. But so, then like after you get your master's, do you just like go to like this round table? Is there like a place where you just say, hey, like I want to be a professor. Like can I register? Like how does that work? <laughs> so basically after you, usually you can go straight from undergraduate to a PhD program. Really? So you basically apply okay. Um, some some people go and do a master's. Some people go and and go straight to PhD programs. I often advise like doing something before you go to a PhD program, like to get a sense of what else is out there beyond books, right? Because then it's an immersion in books, and then you apply to programs. I always say like you know. The ideal is not to pay out of pocket for a PhD unless you're wealthy. Hey, you should be paying so that others can use the fellowship money. But um, uh, uh, but if you're not, like there are fellowships out there. And so that's PhD, the, you recommend? Nah, don't use your money. Like get a fellowship. Uh, usually. PhD programs come with fellowships. Oh, okay, gotcha. Or for at least a number of the uh, admitted uh, students get a fellowship. Some, like, don't get offers for a fellowship, um, which is horrible because it's not like you're going to be rich, like, going to a PhD program. Being a grad student, um, it's very little money and um, lots of work. Um, and how long is the process usually? So usually PhDs take... Uh, the ones that are, some people do it in four years, but that's not normal. Um, usually, uh, I would say average, depending on the field, is six years. Wow. So you go, you take classes for a couple of years. Then usually there's some kind of exam or paper. They come in different forms. Like sometimes you read and read and read and read and then sit in a room for eight hours and answer questions um, using references and citing dates and um, or you 
you do a qualifying paper, which who, is who asks these questions? Um, faculty, the faculty in whatever field you're specializing on. So I, for example, I specialized my area was race and ethnicity, mm-hmm. and so I spent um, like a summer of reading everything there there had been published. I get lists and learning all the debates, and then I went and sat in a room for for eight hours. Eight hours, literally. And like oh my God. with blank. Sh- I mean, you this get a break. This podcast is like an hour and a half, and we're already like, yo, Sweating. this is stuffy. <laughs> so you know, one thing I have to say about sociology is that because we talk about everyday things, people think we're talking about our opinions, mm-hmm. and it's not our opinions. And most of it that we're talk about, we talk about, is a, it's based on research like or knowing shit. what yeah. other people are saying. And yes, there's debate back and forth. We don't. It's not necessarily that we agree. Um, we're building knowledge and we're exchanging ideas. And yes, there's a lot of criticizing. I say sometimes I'm in a profession where all you hear is like the negatives, like that is wrong. You have to fix that. You can't say that or that research. I don't believe it. So there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of crit- criticizing. In some ways, we're trained to pick you know, the uh, the gaps in um, in prior research in order to build kind of like the next set of knowledge. You're, you're, you're trained to call out fallacies, basically. We are trained to do that. Right. We right. are trained and you to are, do that. You, as you should. Yeah, I mean, that's the in, in essence climate, of building knowledge. Yeah, in this climate where facts don't matter, like, I think it's so much more important. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it's interesting because especially I, I'm in a, in a family, you know, I'm the only PhD in my family. and I think, uh, I think that's like the case for a lot of families. There's usually, like, no PhDs. In yeah, well, families, yeah. not true. There are, there are families, you know, PhD if you look fans. at, like, privilege, there are, there are privileged PhD, mm-hmm. you know, where they grow up among academics mm-hmm. and then they're academics the and academics. Stands for privilege, yeah, in their family, mm-hmm. yeah, and mm-hmm. some people are. Um, uh, I've heard I have uh, somebody that says like it really is a profession. The way it was devised, it's, it's, you know, for in some ways for the elite, for people that have the time and and income because it's not a, a lucrative prof- right. profession. Um, I mean, you get to a point where I now I'm rather comfortable just because I went through. The PhD program, and then I've been uh, in my job for 11 years. I have tenure now, so there's this thing that happens. Ooh, shout out to tenure. Tenure. You know? I mean, Tell seriously. us about tenure. I think this is like a 6.99, um, a little a tidbit, like because when college professor says, "Yo, I'm trying to get that tenure, son," like. Uh, like we have, we, like we don't know what that is. Like we're just right. like, yo, what is the tenure? Is like, why, why are you like working so hard, like in the summer, to write your dissertation to get on that tenure money? Yeah, like, what yeah. is that? Tell us about that. So after, so once you get, and and a lot of the academic profession. So once you get your PhD, um, if you want to go to academia, and it's not the only thing you can do, you can do other things. But um, if you want to be a professor and have a life of the of the mind where you are are mainly paid to do research and to teach. That's uh, kind of tight. Yeah. You're, just so, you're getting paid to like be smart and just like think. Yeah, That's yeah, tight. yeah. Tight. So once you get, if you get a tenure track position, and unfortunately there's a decrease in the academic, in, in academia of those types of um, positions and they are, you know, few and far between, which is, 
something to think about for people that are getting PhDs. It's really hard to get a tenure track position. Is it because like the older professors are not dying yet? Is that that what it is? That's part of it, but there's also kind of like um, um, uh, funding from education being taken. How's that possible when like the college tuitions are becoming so much more expensive? Yeah, well, a lot of that goes to administration and not necessarily the teaching. So we do the work and and we're not um, necessarily being compensated properly? Yeah, and a lot of it is going oh, to temporary positions, like, um, oh, you know, lecturers. Yeah. Right, they don't want to pay tenure, so they're just like, yo, you, let me just give out a bunch of part-time jobs. Right, exactly. Where I don't have to pay for, like, insurance or any of that, right? Yeah, which is completely um, uh, deplorable, the conditions of labor for temporary workers. In, mm. in They have PhDs, they are super qualified, they have everything and 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 they get paid like pennies to teach classes you know to develop education is not valued um and and we're suffering from that i you know am one of the lucky ones and i don't know quite how it happened but it did um because you're talented well i think it's more than talent it's luck um you know there i think there's an element of that i i know many talented people that for one reason or another they're not um they should have this um uh and of course there are all the right as a sociologist mm-hmm. all the inequities and in evaluating um, yeah, people. and you're experiencing it yourself That's yeah yeah meta yeah mm-hmm. so absolutely meta um and there's scholarship on this so i it's very rare to have um women of color mm-hmm. i mean if for anybody that goes to college you know this <laughs> like yes. you know um yes. most of your professors don't look like me uh mm-hmm. and i make sure my students know that um because that informs um what happens in the classroom it informs what happens to us in the profession so you know, I am um, one of the few one, few lucky ones um, out of many, many talented women of color that I've met um, over the years with PhDs. Um, so after you get your PhD, you, you know, apply to jobs. It's very <laughs> difficult to get a job um, uh, that's tenure track. That happened to me. Um, uh, and there, <laughs> people tell me like, "Oh, why don't you just work in New York? Like, go to NYU and and work there, right. or <laughs> just sign up, just apply. Why don't you get a job there? Or why don't you get a job there? It doesn't work like that. Right. There has to be an open position. The competition is immense for a job. Like you have, like you're competing against three hundred other PhDs, and it has to be in your area and why they're interested. And then there are so many factors. So right. it's not like it doesn't work." like that because I, I have a homie who actually uh, studied sociology and he was teaching part-time in Staten Island yeah. but then he was a qualified for a potential tenure position so he moved to Singapore yeah yeah so I was like yo that's how this shit works like you got to travel the world and like whatever job opportunity you have do you have to yeah, move over have there to take it. Yeah. so that's why like when I hear certain like college professors from like this part of New York and then they're like in middle of nowhere and like I don't know fucking like Alabama and yeah. shit like 
I was like, oh, that's why. That's why you decided to come here is because that's the only place that you could find a job and shit. Yeah. That's the way it works. So, right. And it's a huge accomplishment that they got that job right, in right, Alabama, right? right? So um, so it, 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 it's a profession. That's how it works, which, which makes it, you know, hard for other things like a community, having a community and family and things like that. But um, once you, if you enter a tenure track position, there's a tenure clock, and we're like, we hear it ticking for six years. Tick tock, tick tock. Mm. You know, like that. So within six years, you got to bang out those dissertations. Basically, and you gotta, like, do publish, publish. They say publish or perish. Oh, wow. Publish um, or perish. perish. Another 699 <laughs> drop. If you're a tenure track professor, you got to publish where you perish, yo. Yeah, that's right. So, and some of these requirements, tenure requirements are stated. Some of, of them are you know, are not quite clear, not fully. At the end of the day, to get a job, to get tenure, it's sort of, some suggest that it's like pledging. Uh, it's like joining a group and being part of a fraternity. You have to be, they want. They have to want you and love you. Uh-huh. Um, and you have to show goods, mm. the oh, goods, which the are goods. how many lines in your CV, how many publications. Wow. So in my case, you know, I was, you know, trying to write a book in those six years, trying to do my articles, teach. I had babies, which is typically a death sentence for getting tenure, but I was doing my thing because um, that was important to me. Why is that a death sentence? Because usually they, especially for women, there's research that shows that they're seen as not being serious enough. Oh, shit. Just because you have a baby, you're not being seen serious? Yes. What the fuck does that and mean? And it takes what kind time. Of, what kind of rule Jakey's is that? mind just blew. Education. That's yeah. across it's, the board. Yeah. That's Welcome right. to being a woman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a woman, so like, I don't <laughs> no, know. No, I mean, this is good that you, yeah. No, nah, but yeah. that shit is fucked up. But why, is. why is that? And the research shows that for men, it's an advantage because they are, they're perceived to be more serious, whereas for women is is a disadvantage with tenure. So they've done the studies and they see this that, you know, that women that have families, they're seen as like um, uh, not as dedicated, you know, regardless of what's going on. But, you know, taking a baby takes time. Like you cannot just like, you know, have a baby and be at the office like, you know, um, uh, yeah, 24-7. Like you, yeah, it's not like you pop out a baby in 24 hours, you know what I'm saying? Like, yo, during those nine months, of course, like, yo, you could write another article, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yo, but I I don't understand so, that logic. That shit is crazy. So these gender dynamics are, well, you know, fully alive and well in academia, mm. in sociology, even though that's what we supposedly study. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> so Damn, uh, I got lucky and, you know, I got tenure uh, six years afterwards and um, it felt like something I had been working towards uh, and for. And tenure is all or nothing. So a group of your colleagues sit behind closed doors. You never know what they talk about, but they basically discuss this. Now I've been part of tenure meetings, so I know what happens in those meetings. It's like choosing a pope. It's like, is it the the white smoke? You know what I'm saying? Basically, and then it's all or nothing. And all means a job for life. 
supposedly, unless they change the rules along the way, which increasingly there might be a move in that direction, like with, in Wisconsin, uh, uh, University of Wisconsin, supposedly they are eliminating tenure. All oh, right, that taking was a big it protest, away. right? Like recently, because I was in Wisconsin yeah. like two years ago uh, for a film screening, and then I remember there were discussions about that, that right. was happening over So there. there's that thread, and some people say, well, yes, of course, as the uh, professoriate changes and you see more people of color coming in, like they're changing the rules, and so because these are professions that are predominantly white, white male. And uh, so, you know, these professors, right, the image of the professor with the tweed jacket and, you know, like spouting like knowledge, you know, and being above every, Mm -hmm. everybody. So that image is true. Like for generations, people have had these jobs where they are paid to think, you know, and, um, and so that's changing. And there's a lot of fear among us professors about, um, you know, how this is going to inform our lives right now that, you know, if tenure is on the chopping block. Um, but for now, getting tenure, it's rather comfortable. After tenure, you it's very hard for them to fire you. That's what I hear. So if I'm fired like tomorrow, like, you know, that's, (laughs) but, um, and you get to have more leeway in terms of the research you do, because, I mean, there's still um, uh, accolades to be had, like there's still, you know, opportunities for promotion and things like that. Uh, But really, I there's no big meeting day to say whether I get to stay there for life or I am, I, I don't have a job right. anymore. So, so after you become a PhD, you have about six years um, until you could be qualified for tenure or not. In a tenure track right, In a position. tenure track, got Yeah, you. if you have a tenure track position, so you, the clock starts ticking. If you don't um, make it within those six years, like nah like you're not getting that tenure six or seven years Uh you can be denied if you're denied they say you can stay here for a year but you got to go and so you have to find either another job that will offer you a tenure clock a tenure and I talked about how how hard that is right like for one time so if not a second time and there's all this stigma put on people who are denied tenure so often if people are like you know it's not looking too good they might try and switch before tenure and kind of like delay their clock um, or you know to get more years on their clock somewhere else so it's it's really it's a game Um, I've seen I've seen people who absolutely deserve to have tenure not get tenure um, I mean they're justified sometimes with like oh it's the teaching or like they didn't do it fast enough in time, which mm. seems to me not a great excuse justification. Right. Like good work is good work, right, and right, right. Um, so it's not. It, it's a little bit um, uh, a process that it's unsure. It's not well tracked, but wow. you know, at then if if you get to now to where I'm at, then it's. Um, you know, smooth I often sailing. think about it, it's the best job in the world. Right. I get smooth to sailing, right. think and um, write and do research and teach. So um, earlier we were talking about um, 
the difference between Dominicans and Puerto Ricans, and we were talking about a lot of the West nuances. In, the nuances, mm-hmm. West Indian culture, Caribbean culture, and also we were talking about, um, uh, I, I guess before we actually started the podcast, we were talking about like the definition of being black or black American, um, where I guess uh, being black Latino or Afro-Latino, uh, I don't know the right terminology, but um, so I think the usage of the N-word, um, I think me personally growing up as an Asian-American kid from Queens, like I was exposed to the word before I even knew what that word meant. It was being used just like how son were like, you know, like in Chicago, they say Joe, you know, like, like how that was being used. Like it was like we didn't like as kids, we had no cultural context of what that word meant, you know. But I, uh, but I soon realized like it was kind of uh, it was because like I grew up in New York where, you know, where like uh, where New York City. Yeah. Were... And then the music that I was listening to hip hop predominantly. And then, you know, they kind of really use it as a form of um as a form of uh, when you're referring to, like they kind of injected love into that word, whereas before it was a word that was used for hate. Um, and and then um, at one point, um, I remember uh, this artist, Jennifer Lopez. She is a Puerto Rican female from the Bronx. Um, she did a song with this artist, Ja Rule, the song called I'm Real. And she had this one line where she said um, something, something, and where they don't know me, though. And uh, in New York City, I don't recall that ever being an issue, like a Puerto Rican girl using the N-word. But then there were a lot of discussions that were happening nationally um, amongst, like, black Americans, uh, and, and a lot of, like, um black historians as well like like what is like why like she is not able to use it and like and some people that were saying like it's fine that she use it you know and and in this current climate um i think there's another latina from the bronx who is getting a lot of noise um in music and mainstream music cardi b and um, i believe she's dominican by ethnicity right she's half trinidadian half dominican oh, so she's half trini mm-hmm. half dominican right so that's like yo like you're black you know what i'm mm-hmm. saying in my definition you're black right um and and you're from the bronx you know what i mean um but i think there's a lot of discussions about like some of the words that she says and the type of personality she portrays and um and so, people's definitions being different yeah people's mm-hmm. definitions being different about like how to identify this person right um, we were talking about like being there, there being light skinned Puerto Ricans and there being light skinned Dominicans compared to like dark skinned Dominicans and dark skinned Puerto Ricans. And there are definitely like uh, differences in how they're being perceived and how they're treated in society. So I guess my question is uh, Afro Latinos, are they considered black? Um, can they be defined as black? Or is that not the proper term for that? Yeah. And, yeah. Well, it depends what you mean by black. <laughs> right. Right? And I think that that is um, a discu- uh, conversation to be had. Like, what is black? Mm-hmm. And often black stands in for African American, but there's blackness. I mean, I said this before. Yes. There's blackness all over the world. Mm-hmm. And um, it might uh, act and look different, but doesn't make it any less black. Um, in fact, I say like the... So there's an expression, you know, that we use the cradle of blackness is 
Dominican Republic. Mm. That's oh. the cradle of blackness. The first Africans in the Americas oh. were in Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Blackness begins not in the U.S. Blackness begin, begins in the Caribbean. Mm. So if you take that perspective, right? I mean, the first, they're, they're just in terms of time, and you watch things like Amistad or films like that, and you know this, like this story has to be re- rewritten. Fast forward to now where we think blackness is only African-Americanness. Well, no, there's many types of blackness born out of similar processes of slavery and conquest and all of that that are being lived. So if we take that perspective, how does that reframe this question of, of black? Yes, there are black people all over the Americas. Some of them might not uh, use the word black to describe themselves. Does that make that experience less about blackness? Mm. Um, so Afro-Latinos, I actually call myself a black Latina. Um, mm. Afro-Latino is a much more in vogue, like current way of defining it. If some people call me that, I'm like, yes, I'm that too. Um, and, uh, you know, precisely how to define that is, is 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 hard and i think in some ways this is about identity whether people think of themselves as such the truth is i'm going to be called black regardless of how i think of myself right like i walk the i'm like i'm i'm brown skin with you know curly um hair uh and i've always thought of myself in that way often in contrast to light-skinned Latinos, whom many I would call white, white Latinos, Mm -hmm. because they are born out of that experience of being privileged. It gets more complicated than when you think of these Latinos in the context of the United States where they're considered or have been treated as people of color, right? Even when they're a little bit, when they're lighter skinned, Mm -hmm. right? So they can, I have people, and I had a hard time when I immigrated with this, because, you know, the people that I thought of as white and super privileged now were like, yeah, we're people like, of color like you. I'm like, no, you're not people of color like me because you're not being called an, an N-word. Mm-hmm. I don't use the N-word even though it's being used against me, right? And it's, when it's deployed with me, it's often against me. I understand that the term, you know, has undergone... It has lived in different moments in different ways, and it lives in different spaces in different ways. So that's why the debate goes like somebody's saying it here and it's okay, and somebody's, you know, Mm -hmm. is like pissed off that it's being said. Um, uh, But I sort of bow to the history of the term as not something to be deployed. That's my view of it. But it certainly should not be deployed by somebody that benefits and has privileges mm-hmm. of whiteness. Mm-hmm. So that I do, I do kind of like, like draw a line on the sand. So, you know, uh, my question would be like, does J-Lo get called that word? In a deployed in negative in a neg- mm. Is it deployed in a negative way against her, mm-hmm. right? And that's the distinction. J-Lo can one day, like, be, you know, an Italian-American in any movie mm. yeah. and come out as a white, white, okay, ethnic or not woman. Mm-hmm. That's very different than many other Latinas that could never be read in those ways. And, in fact, some of the work 
that we've been doing, like, you know, saying the ways in which Latino gets portrayed as invariably the lighter skin or the quote-unquote mestiza, like dark hair, but hardly ever do you see anybody that looks like me or or looks black as a as a latina mm-hmm. on um tv so when you move to the media in latin america so we suffer that we are invisibilized so in order to make it as a as an actor as a latino actor if you don't fit the image of latinoness of the prototype latina you're either participating in, in sort of like black TV if you're black, right? Mm-hmm. So there are examples of, of people like this that people don't know they're, Domin- they're Dominican or Puerto Rican or Latino because they're sort of like subsumed into like black mm-hmm. cinema or black media. Like the guy from Fresh Friends from <coughs> Bel Air, um, uh, uh, Alonso. He's, Alonso, yeah. yeah, he's a Dominican, or even Ashley. I had no idea that he was Dominican. Dominican. Alon- Alonso's Dominican? Alonso's Dominican. Yeah. Yo! What? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many, so many, and I don't even know because I, you know, I'm not up on my, but, but, but there, the Afro-Latino Forum has great, like, videos about these people that are, you know, are. Yo, Alonso's Dominican. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like, you know, when you see Korean-American actors playing Chinese-Americans on TV. Right, right, right. Versa, right, right, totally. Even if they're not claiming, because they're like, well, there's so few roles for me. I, I mean, I guess I'll play this, even if it's not reflective of who they are. Yeah, so, yeah, it's crazy. And that, and that's the debate with Zoe Saldana too, which I mean, she said some unfortunate things about like, no, I people don't see my color, but Zoe Saldana made it mm-hmm. doing black, you know, film, mm-hmm. not. She's not coming in not as a Latina, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right, right. But as a, as black, mm-hmm. which presumes is African American, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so to the question of of that, of how to use the term, I think that we all have to look to ourselves to see how the term circulates in society and how it is used and deployed against people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, it can be a celebration, but it can also have the other side at the time that it's being deployed as a celebration, even if you grew up amongst. So that that's my view. And of course, I didn't grow up like that. So I'm, you know, I, I can only speak from my view and my perspective. I think of a lot of when I hear in a discussion like this about um, Spike Lee's uh, Do the Right Thing. Not That's Do fun. the Right Thing. He did that film, which was very controversial. Um, Bamboozle. Bamboozled. Bamboozled. And he has a scene when they were watching Blackface and he's just like, I'm Puerto Rican. Like this woman comes out, he's like, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm a real N word. I'm a real N word. I think there he very um, subtly indicated this dynamic of suddenly, you know, um, People that have different relationships to this word, right? right? Um, deploying it and how, you know, mm-hmm. questionable that right. use is. At the end of the day, nobody can tell anybody what language they to can use. use. Although I am happy that there is a policing of the N word right. um, happening. Now, I, I had to do this just because you know I, I grew up um, in a part where um, Asian kids. 
black kids, Latin kids, white skin kids, you know, everybody, like, we grew up using it. We grew up using it without really knowing the cultural context behind it. And um, you don't, you know, when, when we're back into our own enclaves, like, I feel like people still use it. Um, but, like, I think it's, it's you know, like, I think it's a difference in using it with like knowing what that means mm -hmm. and using it without knowing where it originated from. You know what I mean? So, you know, when you were in these enclaves and these communities where people didn't question you mm. using those words and all the other kids, not just you and like vice versa, it you kind of grow up into this toxic thing of like, I'm right and like I have ownership and, you know, and I think courses like what you teach and like, even these, like, I call them stink pieces sometimes because people are always, like, mad about, like, who owns this, who can't say this, who says this, and all that stuff. But, like, it really, I think we're moving into a culture of, like, openly discussing. Um, and it's necessary, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? It's mm -hmm. necessary. So yeah. I think leading on mm -hmm. to that, I think you have a question about, yeah, you I, know, her op-ed piece. Yeah, I think to close maybe everything is how you employ the way you approach your students, maybe with your family and your friends. Um, we saw that you were featured on the New York Times in the reader stories about race and education. And you tell a story about this interaction that you have with your um, babies and addressing hard subjects like inequality and racism. And do you have advice for people like us and our listeners on opening these conversations and some of the challenges that we will have to face but overcome? Yeah. No, so I'm a, I'm a firm proponent of um, having the conversations about inequality early mm -hmm. and consistently um, with kids. And, you know, for someone like my kids, and what I wrote there was this moment where we, we were um, we were at a beach in um in Maine, and uh, they had this moment where a kid told them they could not have their black feet um, in their sand pool. Yo, who's this kid? Yeah. Yo, said what? Yeah. The boy in the Maine to <laughs> tell, give this Yo, kid a lesson. Fuck? Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, this happens every day. Like, things like this happen every day. But you live day. in Brooklyn. Like, does it happen every day to you in Brooklyn? Yeah, in it can time? happen in different ways. Um, uh -huh. I mean, some are more subtle than others. Rarely are they so explicit um, um, here in this context. But, but it happens in different ways. Like, in ways, you know, my kid can be um, read as being... Uh, unruly or ruthless or you know I've had I had this interaction once in a ice cream shop in Brooklyn where um, my daughter was holding the line to get ice cream and this woman sort of like treated her like she was um, uh, and she was like five years old like treated her like she was like a 20 year old taking her spot and I'm oh like she's gosh. a child and, and, and I think that really like kids of color I think no I no, research yeah. shows this yes. too that are treated differently in schools, but you know, every you know what's day. Crazy? I treat white people more mean. You know, like when I see white babies, I'm like, yo, move. I'm not endorsing this. Get out of my face. You know, and they're trying to like balance time. it out. Yeah, you're yeah, trying yeah, to yeah, balance yeah. out the equation. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. Life yeah. is about balance. Yeah, but you know, what are the consequences for our kids to be seen always um, um, as older or as more unruly or as dangerous? I mean, we see it every day. Kid, you know, 
they get killed, they, you know, are um, are tracked into pri- prison pipelines, you know, school to, school to prison pipelines. Mm-hmm. So, there, so I am, um, um, I advocate, and it's hard to do because there's this, when kids are young, there's this, like, trying to preserve their innocence, and especially among white parents, they're, they're sort of like, we don't see color. Well, everybody sees color, you know. Yeah, unless you're or colorblind. Basically, and nobody is. And then, you know, there, there's this research on, like, colorblindness and the ways in which people try and avoid the, the, the negative aspects of our society. They're not to be avoided if you know, we want to have a different society. If we want to move towards, you know, more inclusion and more equality, it takes in fighting racism and fighting like white supremacy and white privilege takes going at it head on. It's not going to happen just based on like good intentions. It's going to happen based on you take yourself out of the opportunity and and give the space for a, a, a black person. So I think that especially white children need to not be told like, no, we're all the same, but be told you've had the privilege, you will get the privilege, people will see you as the good kid and you use that, you use that to make room for them at, at, at the cost of yourself, you know? So this sort of like do better, be better success, I think, has to be re- redefined for 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 white people. Yeah. How do you tell this to your like your friends? <laughs> yeah, how do you? But, I, but say, how do you even um, tell that to a five year old kid? Is like, yo, you have to like kind of like do a little less or give up a little for a person of color to have the same opportunity that you would have like how do you explain that to a kid well, though you know there was this kind of phrase that was getting popular of how when you grow up with privilege equality feels like oppression um yeah <laughs> all right say that again <laughs> um, when you grow up with privilege equality feels like oppression Ooh. and yeah to a kid to kind of socialize that from the beginning but yeah how practically can you explain that to a child to a white child and a black child and like other kid kid children mm. yeah so i mean uh, going back to this example i think in that moment yeah. i attempted to approach the the parent because mm-hmm. this is obviously our and i think that the biggest um uh, disappointment is that um there is no interest, right? Like there's little interest in white parents in interrupting yeah. their day at the beach mm-hmm. with dealing with it. Well, well, my day was interrupted, period, mm-hmm. right? My kids continued to think about that interaction. Mm-hmm. And they were scarred. So, I mean, I, I have to teach it to my kids. Mm-hmm. How do you teach it your kids? Well, you know, so I write in this little piece that mm-hmm. I write that, my child kept asking, you know, are people going to think like our cabin needs to be cleaned better and because there were black people staying here? Are they, you know, the weight of racism? People think only only people of color need to carry it. Mm. And mm-hmm. it's not my weight to carry. And sometimes I'm like, you go, like, deal with your business, mm-hmm. right? Because it is your problem. Like, if racism gets perpetuated, it's because you're not intervening. So how do you tell a kid, a five-year-old, 
step back, you do it by saying step back. I think that there's a hesitation to point out inequality. And kids understand it very well. They see it. They see that most of their friends are white. They see that the only black person they see is the nanny, right? Like in New York City, which is, you mm. know. They see that the only black person they see is the, um, uh, or the Latino person they see is serving or is cooking the at the at restaurant. The yeah, it's papi at the bodega. The patterns yeah. are fully you know, uh, out there, and, right. and and the kids know it. So if you see that experience, if that's what you see, there's a, a ample opportunity, to, a great opportunity to have a conversation with your kid about how that person ended up being the cook and why you mm-hmm. ended up living in your condo, in mm. your, like, wealthy condo. There's a great opportunity. Mm. Often, and this comes from my from seeing my college students, the stories are, my dad worked hard for this. Mm-hmm. My family, you know, was smart and invested. Not my family was able, going back to this red lining, was able to get a home because we were given that opportunity to get a home. Mm. And our family accumulated this wealth because they started to, you know, from that seed was able to give whatever the down payment for the next house for this person. And we were able, they on the other hand, don't get to see that. You know, if sociologists were more relevant, if we were, and if, like, the study of race historically would be taken more seriously, like, you know, those questions and those, you know, those experiences that people had, like, there would be more context for it, right? Mm. Like, why does, you know, is that racism or is it kind of, like, fits in, in the racial order that we've been... Um, kind of reared in that that certain communities like you know call each other this when they have more to lose by calling each other that than than not. So, uh, you know, just a shout out to like sociology mm-hmm. as a possible you know kind of um, set of knowledges that can inform that better. Um, and I think we have to be careful about the language we use as well. Like, you know, what is racism? And that's been used a lot, like reverse racism, 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 racism. Like, what is racism and how does it um, live in white supremacy, you know, um, mm-hmm. capitalistic white supremacy, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right, yeah. But then, you know, as you've mentioned, even in the most educated um Groups, there is still very withstanding um, right. inequality. Right. So that's just kind of like saying maybe it's not just necessarily tied to information. It's it's really deep rooted biases. Mm. Um, but I think we honestly received so much from you today, and I am I'm so excited for our readers or our listeners. <laughs> this is an audio book. This is a written word. Um, no, our <laughs> listeners to like. Listen and shout out to sociology yeah, and to really sociology consider. all day, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah I need yeah. to start start like taking more sociology classes <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead and of that. trying to be a fucking you know Wall Street douchebag. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. so much and thank you for the nuanced conversation. I think that really was the key word of like let's not make cognitive shortcuts. Let's not box mm. people. 
let's really lay everything out and question everything of why we think. And we thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. That. And then、um, lastly, what would you say is the most important relationship in your life? The most important relationship is the one is to my kids.、Mm-hmm. Um, it's because it's the one where I get to imagine the world I'd like to live in,、mm-hmm. um, and and it gives me a continuity to the world that I had never thought about before.、Um, uh, they're the legacy. And they're the reflection of the best and the worst in、um, me. Word. So yeah, that's it.、Um, once again, I appreciate everybody listening, everybody participating.、Uh, my name is Jay Kicho and Joanne Park. And、um, <laughs> this is Six Ninety Nine Per Pound Podcast Production, co-produced by Julie Young. Engineered, mixed, mastered, and all the crazy sound stuff done by Marcus Evic Pleasure Ham. And、uh, once again, I appreciate you, Professor, for coming through. And、uh, yeah, publish or perish. Publish or perish, y'all. <laughs> no, no. Peace, peace, peace. Hey, yo, it's six ninety nine per pound. Podcast.